Welcome to the Fabrice Guerrier Show, a podcast about the future of humanity. Our planet is drastically changing and transforming exponentially. Yet, what does it mean for all of us? How do we right the wrongs of the past? How do we create a better future? How do we hope and dream and imagine something that can move us and inspire to take action in our lives? This show invites experts, authors, visionaries, creative leaders from all walks of life to offer unique insights on their visions of the future. Because I personally believe right now or times we're living in it is the greatest opportunity we have ever been afforded as a species to reinvent all of society for the better my guest today is edwidge danticat she's a haitian american novelist and short story writer she's the 2009 macarthur genius fellow grant recipient her works of fiction and nonfiction have been critically acclaimed internationally and have won numerous awards from the National Book Critics Circle Award to the Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Literary Award. I look up to Edwidge. I first encountered her work back when I was an undergrad at Florida State University when I took a class titled Literature and Human Rights. We read The Farming of Bones. It's a historical fiction story that explores the Parsley massacre during the dictatorship of Rafael Trujillo. And it left an impact on me. It showed me that writing and stories can have an impact, can really change our mind and help us become more human. It is a great honor to have Edwidge on the show. We talk about writing for the future, what it means to be an artist in this time. We talk about Haitian futurism and the textual moment of the collective. And so much we explore of her vision of the future. Again, thanks for tuning in. Now, without further ado, let's dive right in. All right, I'm so excited to have Edwidge Dantika with us for this podcast episode. Um, the question I always start with the guests on the show is, how did you discover your passion? Um, and I'd love to hear more about that journey as well. Well, first of all, I want to say, thank you for having me. It's really nice uh, to be chatting with you. So how did I discover my passion? Um, so I was this very super shy little girl you know, in Haiti, I, I grew up in Haiti until I was 12. And I used to listen to like both in the city, I grew up in Port-au-Prince, but I spent a lot of summers in the country, as my mother used to say, you know, send them to Leogan with a, like two bags of rice, two bags of cornmeal, <laughs> two bags of corn and some oil. <laughs> and they come back in like late September, you know, to have the uniforms made for school. Yeah. So, um, but I was really, I would, I would listen to people vibe and tell stories in the countryside, especially, but also in Port-au-Prince where my grandmother and my grandmother in Leogan, I had a sort of an adopted grandmother in the city. 
And I just, I just loved the idea of people telling stories, but I knew watching it that it was like theater to me. Like, mm. like I would never be able to do that performance. And then when I was four, my uncle gave me a book. It was like the, the Madeline, Madeline books. You know, now I just remember mostly in English, like in a house in Paris that was covered with vines. He was about 12 little girls was living with nuns and I thought I want to do that that I want to do like that I can do because it's one person one book I didn't know how the words got into the book I didn't know how that was done but I was like that's what I want to do and as I got older you know and figured out like that there was an author and um, that and I realized I want to do that no matter what else I do like even if I follow the immigrant path Mm. of you know of like doctor, lawyer, engineer, I would still be writing. <laughs> so that's really, that was the moment. Like, and I, and I knew there's that moment, I think for everybody who has a passion when the passion is amorphous, right? Mm. When you're like, this is where I want to go and you don't know what the road looks like, mm. but you just kind of want to move in that direction. So that that's really what it was like, that moment of discovery for me. That's so powerful that a story, it was like the moment like it just like you, you were presented with a, a promise a journey when you had that those emotions that's so powerful and you moved you said you moved to the u.s when you were 12. um i moved to the u.s when i was about 13 and and mm. i feel like my passion for writing was definitely something that came later but i would love to hear like what was your how did you stay true to um to that passion did you pursue the lawyer uh doctor engineer that everyone <laughs> kind of casts Haitians uh or Haitian parents kind of moves us towards that direction well I I realized um as I was going along that my parents fear about when I said that I wanted to write like I think I told them mm-hmm. when I was 12 and I got here and they're like you know everybody always wants to know what you're going to be when you grow up and so, and my dad and my parents would always answer for me, like, she's going to be a doctor. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, and when I, you know, I started uh, what they call middle school here, but junior high school in New York, I, I asked 320 mm-hmm. and um, it was on that. So then you had to apply to high school and I got into my neighborhood high school because I had, I was new to the sta- States, you know, I was, um, and my dad went to Clara Barton High School for the Health Professions, which was right across from the Brooklyn Museum. And he had such a powerful talk with the principal there. He's like, my daughter's gonna be a doctor. She needs to come to this school. <laughs> that they not only let me in, like I was in the honors program, wow. <laughs> like after two years, my dad talked them into that. So I started, then I, in high school, I volunteered at Kings County Hospital. I did my service hours there. So I was going to go on that path, but I, we landed at nursing because I thought that would take less time. Yeah. So I was pursuing, you know, nursing um, that was, you know, in that direction. And then doing the volunteer work, I worked in geriatrics a lot and people would die constantly. And I felt like oh, I, it was breaking my heart so much. I felt like I can't do this job. I mean, I came to writing like for the public at the same time, I think that you came here. I started writing for New Youth Connections, mm-hmm. a journal in New York City. So that's basically how I began writing for other people than myself. 
that's so powerful like i i i hold it true to my soul that the arts and storytelling is the final frontier for helping people see and feel and understand things they've never understood before um i would love to hear your visions like how has how's your like your values or your understanding um around the craft of storytelling deepened or strengthened or change or transform like who were you when you first started writing and then now you've created this large body of work um and have been such a strong creative voice in in the world i i i'm intrigued to hear that vision internally how did you perceive yourself in relation to your craft well you know writing and i'm i think it's it's probably the same for you and for a lot of people i think for me it's like it's such a like a crucial part of my life it's kind of like if i'm not able to do it i feel like something is missing mm. um and again i feel like i would from the moment i started writing i felt like i would do this no matter what else i was doing that this is for me like almost like as necessary as like breathing or eating or you know that it was like i had it was something i loved so much and so initially and then i realized um going back to the last question you know i realized why my parents were so hesitant about me being a writer you know of course there's that the, the immigrant um anxiety of success right like so much was sacrificed for you that they want you to pursue a, a secure path but right. a, a secure path but my parents also had grown up doing a dictatorship you know where people where books were burned so you could go to prison for the kind of books you had and mm. and writers were exiled or like Jacques Stephen Alexis was one of our great writers this year is yeah. the 100th anniversary of his birth or this you know this year cycle and so they you know just that was discouraged i think as a kind of means of survival of moving us forward but um i feel like my process is deepened in the sense that now you know i i started writing publishing you know with new youth connections when i was 14 and then i published my book which came out of an essay that i wrote for them when i was 24 you know breath eyes memory my first book and now i'm 52 so mm -hmm. now i almost feel like i feel like i'm writing for the future like I, there's this whole mm -hmm. new generation of my family you know there's like on my on my husband's side they're like great grandchildren of of his mother and on my side you know i have my nieces and nephews who are in their 20 some of them have never been to haiti mm -hmm. and are consuming the same information everybody else is um but is processing it through us you know through like the dinner table conversations through the, the so i feel like i'm writing for that for that line in my family i feel, you know it's like like i'm having a conversation with them but when i was 15 i was you know kind of without realizing it following tony morrison's you know um maxim where she said if there's a book that you want to read it and it doesn't yeah. exist write it <laughs> so I, so at 15 i was in in the years you know like the decade or so that followed or maybe the two decades i felt like i was writing for me i was writing what i needed to read what i needed to be experiencing to better understand some things but at 52 with like now teenage uh, children and you know nieces that are in their 20s approaching their 30s i feel like i'm writing for them and their kids now so that's been the progression for me 
That's powerful. Yeah, always. That's really, really powerful. There's so much to um, to unpack there. I, I feel I, I love what you said in terms of writing for the future and the next generation. I don't know if you always get this feeling like as you're writing the words, you kind of see you, you almost sense an audience that is watching you writing those words mm-hmm. as words kind of travel across time. Um, I, yeah, I, I wonder, like, can you express a little bit more on the writing for the future? Like, why, why, did, like, how do you think this is like this as has this inspired you to focus more in terms of like, you know, that your your progeny and your descendants will be understanding your worldview and what they come back because I know like first generation or second generation immigrants it's like you're more acculturated into like the American ethos and I felt like for me when I moved here it was almost as if like because I had had that background that I was like had lived 13 years in Haiti and moving here the more I try to fit in into American culture the more like it erased part of myself and it's almost as if like I had to embrace like my Haitianness and also discover other aspects of how the world functions. And it almost felt like like it almost feels like the next generation after me who are born here, um, they don't, don't want necessarily have that deep connection or intimacy. So I would love to hear about like, how do you like what can you explore a little bit more about around what does it mean to write for the future in the context of of the unborn or the next generation, your children's children's and 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 there. What does that mean for you? Well, for me, I mean, it sounds a little lofty and I think I like to, in, in my mind, just narrowing down to like my line, you know, like kind of like my, my family, because we are, you know, the, my generation used to be called like sort of like the half generation like I guess yours would be too, like who are not born here, but who spent most of our life in, you know, in the US. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, then there's the next generation who's in like my nieces and nephews who just have spent their whole lives in the US and have parents, you know, who, who are non-Haitian. So they're in families sometimes where they're, you know, half Jamaican, half Haitian, half some, you know, half, uh, another identity so it just it started feeling um necessary to kind of tell my family story when I was writing brother I'm dying and mm-hmm. that was like in 2000 2000 it, it was about events that happened in 2004 which was the 200 year anniversary of Haitian independence and then uh, but it was published in 2007 so I started feeling I was like I really would love my you know, my nieces and nephews to read this book and learn about my grandfather and learn about, you know, who would be their great grandfather. And, and I, and it felt like, and then the writing started feeling more like an act of documentation, right? Because there, there are several paths and, you know, one can take in writing, right? There's, there's all this, there's a lot. And I've been blessed to have received sort of a lot of outside affirmation of, you know, um, but there's this other intimate level to it, right? That there's a, a point which we've talked about where it feels like necessary for some reason, right? Like, mm. so, so I think in a way, it, what's also led me in that, to that thinking is reading sometimes the work of writers who maybe not everybody's heard of, you know, like, 
But then I read that writer and I was like, that was for me. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm like, that was written for me. I know it was written in like 19 or whatever or 18 or something, but that was for me. So I think, you Mm. know, it's like another thing Toni Morrison used to say. It's like she used to say that Tolstoy didn't know he was writing for a little black girl in Lorraine, Ohio. Yeah. Right. And then and she didn't realize she was writing for a little black girl like me. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's also that part of um, that part of just like the, the, the way the words travel themselves, you know, there's even, there's a Haitian proverb for everything, but there's a <laughs> Haitian proverb that I love and cite a lot that says, words have wings, words have feet. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of like, that's why, you know, I think literature in general is such a great ambassador, you know, to, to all of us. It's such a great outreach and communicator and, and and sometimes there there are things you read where it's like that that then the work becomes your own you know and the writer becomes your own and it's like you embody them and they become so I think that's all part of like putting something in on down mm-hmm. that you feel like oh if I didn't put it down I would you know it would not exist and then it would be also it'll be great of service to somebody hopefully you know Absolutely. It's almost as if it's like we're called to step into our light, step into our, our excitement or passion or ways that embodies our, our spirit so it can allow others to be uplifted. Um, that's so powerful. I, I love that proverb. I'm going to keep that for the rest of my life. Yeah, um, no, it's very, I mean, there's so many wonderful ones. And it's, and also like in, in terms of what, like exactly along the lines of what you're saying, to mm-hmm. also realize that our our work like our words are part of this collective right mm. um, especially in the time that we're living um, where like I can tell my version of this time and you will tell your version of this time mm. and somebody ahead you know in the future will be able to get a sense of the full textured collective of this moment right that it wasn't just the way it was in new york not the way it was in miami or the way it was in port-au-prince but everything else that was happening around it so i think the way that sort of our individual stories meet to create this larger story is is also something that's very um powerful about you know the words traveling and the words um having you know having the wings that they do have Absolutely. I there is this a painting by this. It's a psychedelic painter called Alex Gray, and there's a specific painting where he shows like a a pen, like a pen is writing on the paper, and the way that he portrays the painting is almost as if it's like bending reality, where it's like reality is being like com- is collapsing by the act of putting something down. And I feel mm. like what you're saying in terms of the words being able to travel across time and space is so powerful. And I feel and one of my one of my favorite texts that from you that you wrote was it was sort of a manifesto to create dangerously. And mm-hmm. and I really, really appreciated that. And I, I think I'm going to say that right now. I think you wrote that for me. <laughs> oh, thank you. It, it resonated a lot. I feel like it's it's sort of encapsulated like the need to use storytelling as a way to transform the world around us. and because there is so much trauma, there is so much violence, there is so much pain, there is so much lack of understanding. And it's like the arts and this act of creating is, is what is going to create like that future. So I would love to like 
dive in a little bit and, and like create dangerously? What was that process for you? Because I love Albert Camus. He's one of my favorite writers as well. And But I would love to hear what was that process for you? What does create dangerously mean? And how does this also relate to like the impact of words and, 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 and how it kind of travels and connects with people? Well, I mean, even the way like that essay came about was miraculous. So um, mm. after uh, Toni Morrison re uh, retired from Princeton, she was still emeritus, but was no longer um, teaching. They started a lecture series in her name. Mm. And so in the first, and she got to pick who gets to give the lectures. And the first person was Cornell West. And then the second one, they're like, they asked me, she asked me. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh my God, I had a whole year. Um, and I was like, what am I going to say that Toni mm -hmm. Morrison has not heard, right? Because <laughs> she, <laughs> she was going to be in the front row um, with like Eddie Glard was running. There's like the whole, wow. like, the, like it's this most intimidating thing. <laughs> and so I was, I spent a whole year thinking what I, what I was going to say. And then I loved, you know, Camus too. And he wrote, he was one of those writers who also wrote a lot about writing mm -hmm. and, you know, like, what does it mean with the kind of nuance, right? Like mm -hmm. um, that I really appreciate. I love the, the, the novels and the plays, but he also writes really amazing essays on the art of writing. And yeah. so I thought, and I was like reading it, his essays again, I was like, what would he say? <laughs> You know, and so, and then I came across this, you know, reread this essay that was one of his last. It was a, uh, it's, it's called L'Artiste et son temps, you know, the artist in the time. And then they tr mm. translated as that. And I thought, let me think about, you know, the artists of my time, right? The artists, like the writers I mentioned, who made my parents afraid for me to be a writer and, um, and how they worked, you know, as writers. So, then I, you know, I started with this execution um, in, in Haiti that there was actually film for, which I hadn't realized, but my friend, a photographer named Daniel Moel, and um, I had this footage that he let me see and it was just really tragic and I thought, and then I thought, let me think of all the Haitian artists I know who were just creating in spite of all these dangers. And so I decided to um, frame the book, you know, the talk and then the book around around that. It was a way also for me to remind myself of like this legacy that I come from of these brave artists who, you know, like Marie-Vieux Chauvet, who they had a, a group of writers, they called themselves, uh, you know, spiders of the night and they met in secret. It was, and, you know, and there's the story of her books being pulled right before they were published um, because her family was threatened. So all of that, it's, it's also things that I felt like maybe, you know, it's good to remind, you know, to have with me, like as an accompagnement, you know, like as uh, these stories to know of, of sort of what I come from, not just as like as a person, but also as a creative person. Hmm. That's truly powerful and inspiring. And I feel like there's so much um, storytelling and history and, and Haitian history um, I'll, I'll love to sh shift the conversation uh, a little bit, but I think it connects very well. I, I love to go into the topic of Haiti because Haiti has been, and, and before we started, before we started the podcast, we were talking about how there's so much, there is a lot of tension in the Haitian community around what's happening in Haiti and what's happening to our country and how 
things have been like been melded in, in chaos and how the media kind of engages those things. And I've read a few of your essays in The New Yorker as well. Like, I, I wonder, it, it's, I think it's the perpetual struggle of, of the first independent Black country and then having a lot of stru the struggle, the perpetual struggle to imagine a future that was far ahead of its time and, and the consequences of that, of that imagination or that creation of liberation. Like, I would love to hear, like, in the context of Haiti or in the context of your life as well, like, what are some of your visions for the future and, and how do we keep hope and how do we keep faith despite the, the troubles and the, the aspirations? Um, because we know it's, it's very complex in terms of people who live in poverty, but are not necessarily in deep sorrows, but they are sort of living well in such a way that is in a non-Western centric way of looking at things. So I feel like there's, when talking about the context of Haiti, it's so complex. Um, and I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily understand and might have that single story or, or certain narratives or maybe academic viewpoints that don't necessarily like don't necessarily embrace like the holism, the holistic of like religion, culture, and and art and politics and history and how these things kind of syncretize themselves within people and their pride and who they believe they are and, and why they're here. So I'd love to hear your your comments on the future in in, in Haiti and, and in your life as well. Well I think you're you're so right that um Haiti is so nuanced and so complex and so beautiful and so, and in such pain and, and it's so layered, but I think we also must not. And sometimes I meet people younger than me who will say, my God, I, you know, it's so complicated they, that we can't let that um, so-called complication keep mm -hmm. us from engaging, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we engage in, you know, just the milieu that we're comfortable with, if it's the arts or, but, but um, I would say that to every younger Haitian who is just sometimes, I know sometimes it's hard for them to grasp all the strings, right? Yeah. Um, but, but don't let that keep you from, in, from engaging, especially now that there are ways like, you know, there are groups online you can join, like there's, there's Woy Magazine, there's Union Suite, there's Aibo Post, there's these media that didn't exist when I was younger, where you can mm -hmm. hear from, you know, Haitians directly or Haitian Americans. And, you know, in addition to the, to the broader media, um, that, that is also important to, to look at and read. Um, but get familiar also with the Haitian arts, with Haitian music, with Haitian movies, and to yeah. get this other layer. But you're so right that Haiti is, um, and among ourselves, we say it a lot, but I'm always shocked that other people in the wider community are not aware of it, that Haiti is like the first, you know, it's an extraordinary feat that we manage, you know, the first black republic in the, and, you know, the first place where um, enslaved people created their own nation. And that just, and Haiti has of course been punished for it with the indemnity from France, having to pay for that independence. And the, you know, and being isolated in the region and even places that Haiti helped gain their independence, turning their backs and not, you know, not returning the favor when Haiti is in need. And then the U.S. occupations, the, all these moments where 
you know, Haitians tried to take their destiny into their own hands. And then, you know, then, you know, the, the, you know, we live here, but, you know, the, the imperialist next door is like, no, you cannot do that. <laughs> you know, starting with um, 1804. So yeah. it's been, you know, struggle after struggle. And you're right um, in that in the midst of that, there's, you know, and not to, you know, forget the, the natural disasters, which are, ex, you know, made worse by the unreadiness, the, you know, the, the, the way, you know, places are constructed. And then the, the storms that, of course, um, in the age of climate change that we now have to be looking out more for because, yeah. you know, the Caribbean in general is in the eye of that. We're going to be taking the brunt of climate change. So there's a, and then there's the present, you know, now, gosh, we're like, as we're talking, there's this kind of, you know, people are waiting, what's gonna happen with the missionaries or the, you know, and the gangs and the guns that are coming from the US and elsewhere, like all these guns, the guns, mm. um, you know, in the country and which will, you know, it'll be hard to solve the, the, the actual problem without, you know, stopping the flow of these guns, their guns are not produced in Haiti. Um, so I think any, um, anything that's done without, you know, stopping the flow of the guns is, I don't know how that's going to be done. And, and um, but you know, when I mostly when I, you know, I haven't been this year or since the pandemic, but mostly when I've gone to Haiti, we go, um, you know, to Port-au-Prince a little, but mostly in the South to like high um, and, you know, areas like Campéry and um, Léogane, where my family's from. And we have to also remember, just as you said, that this is a beautiful, like physically beautiful place. There's so many places where the country is so green and, and there's still a lot of people in there fighting. It's not just the Maozos and the rest, you know? <laughs> there's some, there's some um, it's not just the gangs. There are good people there too. There are people trying to live their daily lives, love their children, you know, to people who are, who, who are trying to stay, but that as Warson Shire says in her um, beautiful poem, Home, that, that home won't let them stay. So um, I think uh, it's, you know, just, it's so important, I think, for this next generation of younger Haitians to also stay engaged, right? Like, um, because ultimately, we're going to have to contribute in some way. Um, you know, like my parents' generations, um, and to a certain extent, my generation, were just never disconnected. Like, you know, like, people like me, like, we're sort of raising... 20 girls because, mm. you know, you're sending to school, you're so, and my parents were doing that. But what I'm afraid is that the next generation won't have those ties, right? Like mm. those actual, no actual people. Yeah. So, so we're going to have to find other ways for, for that engagement to continue because the country is certainly going to need it. Absolutely. I, I, I feel like when I first moved to the U S um, and like a lot of a lot of my mindset was like, okay, so how do I adapt? How do I grow? But I, I it, it almost as if it's like I had to turn around. Like later on, I'm realizing right now, like many, many, many years later, that like embracing that path and not shying away from those complex 
patterns and fully diving in into it is what brings more life and more, more meaning. I think meaning is, has a lot of magic in it in terms of like being centered, being grounded and being able to do something. Um, I, I love to hear like so what, where, I guess, what is, what can Haiti, what is the role of Haiti in the future then? Like what, what do we like in the context of the U S in the context of, of all these social movements that are happening in terms of our culture, the Black Lives Matter movement, because I always feel like symbolically, whenever I meet a Haitian or even a, an African-American here in, in the U.S., it, it, there is always this sort of pride for Haiti. But it almost seems like uh, in terms for me, I'm looking in terms of social change and movement building and coalition. It's like there almost lacks like this pen movement where this intersectional coalition of like groups of people and i almost feel like the the haiti story or the stories that haiti can represent can play a role in that future maybe i'm answering the question <laughs> but i would love to hear your thoughts in terms of just like where do you see us going in terms of the future and 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 where our planet is because i think you you specifically talked a lot about climate change you talked about the guns and the war and that's so true I chuckled it a little bit because I was like, yeah, Haiti definitely does not create guns. So where the heck are these guns coming from? Um, and how do we stop th that flow? Um, I, I don't know. I've, I'm just like, I guess, looking for your your thinking and your visions of like in 30, 40 years, like, what do you see? Like, what are some of the most important ideas that we should pay attention to? And I know storytelling is part of that too. So <laughs> uh, Yeah, well, I think, um, the next 30 or 40 years and to my mind will be determined by what Haitians are allowed to do, right? Um, and uh, for themselves, because there are these very, there are always these very powerful outside forces operating in Haiti, you know, certainly the United States, the core group, which is this group of um, ambassadors that sort of meet and led by the US too, like the embassies that sort of decide what happens in Haiti, the BNU, the UN, all these outside bodies that sort of dictate. Um, and, and it's like, okay, this one's prime minister now, he's not prime minister anymore, or we, we, you know, we want this one in the election and, and have the power and the means and sort of sometimes the, the tactics to make these um, things happen. So, the future, I think, will be determined what, based on how much Haitians are allowed to do for themselves and, um, and whether they will decide a path. Right now, um, it seems pretty, you know, like it's a difficult, it's a very difficult time. There's a lot of fear, you know, even from my own relatives, you know, when I talk to people, they're, they almost, they, it's, they're almost in shock all the time. They're like, can we go out today? Can we not go out today? And that's, uh, you know, and that's now whether people are in Port-au-Prince or whether they're um, even out in the country, like, you know, in like I the other day, um, people like, oh, we couldn't get past this barricade. And I've had, you know, uh, tight moments myself, you know, when we've been um, in Haiti at barricades and, and situations like that. And it's very, you know, it's, they, they can get very, um, very tense and can require some pretty fast thinking with the uh, people who are who are with you so I know um, I know some of the the tension 
But, you know, Haiti, um, I've been to places in the United States, like in North Carolina and, and another place, I can't remember when I was called, Haiti, um, H-A-Y-T-I, which was the old spelling of Haiti. So Haiti was, used to be a destination, you know, it was a place where, um, you know, the leaders of Haiti used to, post-independence basically said, you know, Desalines was like, if you land on the shore and you're an enslaved person, you're free. You know, and and Jefa and Boye and others who were like, come to Haiti, and people wanted to go to Haiti. It was like a a a, a beacon, like a and black um, yeah, and it was the you know this this first place where people just like you know they that's probably the first place where like Black Lives Matter acted on it, fought for it to prove it. Mm. Um, so I think what people can also follow in the story of Haiti is how much you suffer for that, how much you suffer for, for, for that victory. But I would say people don't give up on, don't give up on Haiti, you know, and, and especially I think that's important for, for Haitian Americans because sometimes our parents also, um, parents speak disparately of Haiti. They're like, fini, you know, like, you know, and, no, fini, you know, we have to also believe um, whatever we can contribute in the diaspora politically, um, you know, culturally, you know, amplifying um, to try to to um, make sure that there's a that there's a, a a future ahead for Haitian children, children who 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 are growing up in the country, and so um, right now there seems to be you know politically there's there's um, a group of Haitians who have come up within within accord, and they've tried to get groups of, of different groups together to mm -hmm. to try to come up with a path. Um, so there are there are people who are you know who are trying to 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 forge a way ahead um, and um, an inclusive way. But there's a lot I think we'll have to solve also in the current moment because what can happen when you have young men and poor neighborhoods like the one where I grew up in Bel Air who mm. have taken up arms because they, you know, um, that's like the only game in town. So, so what are you gonna do with all these young men? What, you know, and women and in these neighborhoods, some of them who are fleeing these neighborhoods. And, um, and I was reading something yesterday where uh, people who are leaving Martissant with you know where they like the sort of neighborhoods where the gangs have full hold can't rent other places and the first of all they wouldn't be able to you know they're they're in this neighborhood like poor neighborhoods are criminalized because often that's the only place people could live like I knew where my uncle was in Bel Air who had, he had been there for 50 years mm -hmm. but like the fact that he was there people assume that they criminalized that you know they criminalized him and his neighbors because like you know if you're so so there's just a big swath of the country that's suffering for that. But I, but you know the the symbol in the, the symbolism of Haiti is so strong, and for us who are Haitian or Haitian, you know the reality of Haiti is so strong that it's it's something that we can never ever ever give up on, and and you know it should not, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so much you've, you've said. I appreciate all your words there. Um, yeah, absolutely. At Haiti of the future will be uh, Haiti that's ha Haitian owned and, and led 
And I and I too and I do agree. It's like why is there so much involvement from outside uh, groups with so much good intentions, yet those intentions are the dismay that eventually leads to more chaos. Um, I. I, I I I seriously I really appreciate this conversation, Edwidge, and this is so powerful and inspiring for me. Um, I have two last questions before we leave. I guess the 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 the, the one before the last is now bring bring us back to like your personal writing and your personal craft. Like, where is where are you like in terms of your writing? Like, what are you hoping to accomplish? Like, what do you see, like, the your writing and the role that you play? Like, how do you start to decide, like, which stories to pick or which stories to tell? Like, is, like, I guess this is more of a creative process question. Um, do you, like, are you influenced deeply by what's happening, like, in Haiti or what's happening in the broader world? Like how, like what, in terms of like projects, literary projects that you work, you work on, like is like, what are some of the next steps for you? Well, you know, there's a, a part of me that, that is still, that goes back to that young girl listening to my aunts and grandmothers and other people tell stories mm -hmm. that just feels like there's a part of me that's always been a little bit afraid to speak for a collective, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, because I feel like, okay, this is how I think, this is what I feel, this is, but I don't want to speak for like 10 million people or even <laughs> like, or even the, the one or 2 million they say is in the diaspora. I always felt like that was sort of like something one shouldn't do to try to speak for everybody. Mm. Um, but I like, I'm like a you know like and um and I think to to be a a writer and it to be an artist in any way you're kind of an empath right you're like you're just kind of like you 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 can't sleep because of something that this happening and you know like there's so many and I think I know it because in my own family we always have this conversation there so many of us have you know we have so many sleepless nights over events in Haiti and now it's like we are like youtubing all the time like the latest thing and because first of all we have family there but we also have a heart there mm. um and then other things in the world you know we've just come off of a pandemic right yeah. where people in 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 the community where i live you know were out of work for a long time um which was sort of affected you know you should have seen the food lines here in some places in florida right so there's this, all these things that are happening at the same time. And I think in a way, an artist, as James Baldwin says, is a, is a witness. Mm. Um, and there's a way too that I still, you know, I'm, I still live in community, you know, like I'm still um, in, in the community that, that raised me, not in the same city. I, you know, was mostly in New York, but I'm now in Miami, but I still feel like I'm part of this community. Like there's, um, so, um, so I'm, you know, I'm influenced by everything. Like I'm just always um, taking notes. Of course, you, you know, I try to see what I can contribute in a concrete way. Um, but there's that, you know, I don't know, and I'd be curious for you how you experience it, but there's that also with, with art, that balance of just like 
being out in the world and I'm naturally a super introverted person and I feel like I have extra social uh, anxiety after the pandemic like you know like I, I went to like a parents meeting with my for my kid yesterday and I was like oh there's so many people in this small space like so, <laughs> so I have like sort of like the introvert thing but like also all oh, the super spreader fear so um all of that, I think, whether we like you're addressing it in the work, all of that is there. So I don't. How has it been for you? Like, I'd be curious. Like, in terms of, like, how because there's also this part of the art where you have to shut out the world, but you need the world, right? For so you, you sort of need to be. So that's like I think that's the dilemma. Like, sort of the balance artists have to do to be like, you know, to kind of like the Hemingway thing of like going and living a life. Mm. And then, and then going like into like this smallest of places to then try to have the solitude, have the quiet to be able to like reproduce that in some way. So how, do, how is that for you? Like balancing the outer world in this inter, in, inner world? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I, I feel like, especially during the pandemic and the quarantine, um, a lot of what you've said resonates with me a lot. It's like, I, I felt like everything, like it's almost as if like physical space has different boundaries. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm in the house and I'm going to the store and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But it's almost felt like it's like, okay, and you're stationary in one place and now reality becomes like the media and re becomes social media or becomes the internet, becomes technology. And it's like, and then you're fed, I was, Personally, I was like just kind of consuming so much information and it felt like that inner flame was being extinguished. Um, and, and, and I felt like it, it was because of the pandemic that I started to realize, OK, I need to move to L.A. where I'm at now. And it was also where I started to realize like there are these six, seven things that I have to do to be able to feel my best in terms of like getting enough sleep or or mm -hmm. running or eating healthy, drinking a lot of water. It's almost as if it's like my entire life from a third person perspective, as if I was a character was seen in a, in a magnifying glass. And I think in terms of the creative process, you're absolutely right. It's like, I, I had to create space for it. It's like, you have to like set a certain amount of time every day to write. And if you don't do that, it's like, it <laughs> you feel bad. And it's, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think yeah, it's it's strange. It's like I think like in terms of getting ideas or or the creative process, I always see it's I guess this is the whole conversation around like do we is art for art's sake or do we use art to like tell like a, an agenda or a message? And I and I and I can see both 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 perspectives. Um, but I almost feel like you can't remove it's sort of the Amira Bakara, like you can't remove art from like the politics it's like so integral to like my identity as a black Haitian immigrant in the U.S. and it's almost as if it's like there was a point where I was almost afraid to speak more in my black experience because I felt like that was gonna be too like be portrayed as like the stereotypical person but now I feel like I embrace it more and maybe it's more of a stage maybe it's just kind of like okay I'm an artist at this stage of my life and I need to kind of process all of these things in relation to what's happening to the world. And maybe in 10 years, um, I will start writing about different things in terms of my 
So I think I've learned to embrace more of like my, my or what my voice is becoming to be, my artist voice. Um, I think I'm still figuring it out, but I think kind of leaning more into how I react to certain things in the world is important, but also like creating space to process those reactions. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's also important to allow that space for you to grow. Um, it's, I think it's a little trickier now because everything is, is such like, it can be so amplified so quickly. You're, it's the, everything is, you know, like, like Camus uh, said in that essay, you know, the, the artist is always in the amphitheater. Mm. And so this amphitheater is, is huge now, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it just like, exactly. So, so I think for, for some people that makes them like, oh, you know, you, like it makes you a little extra careful or timid in a way, because you're like, hey, am I ready for this amphitheater, you know? Mm. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's good to give yourself time to process. It's time also to grow and to learn. Um, the thing that is harder now is sort of like to, like, if, when you make public mistakes now, you're sort of like, you know, like you're beaten <laughs> up in public, um, but you're in the amphitheater. But, um, but yeah, I think it's important to give yourself the time to grow. I've always been that person who kind of like is like, is more like sort of like goes within to do these things to try to you know but but the processing is very important to me like how am I growing all the time you know learning more and learning you know we were talking about ancestors before um, you started recording but yeah like looking back and that that's really what create dangerously was about Mm. Like looking back to, to the people who are my literary ancestors and to mm. see like, you know, how, how did they do this? How did they do it? Um, and our times are different for sure. Um, but, but there's so much to also learn from them and also from younger people to see what mm. they're doing. That, that is interesting. That is taking us since this is a theme of your, of your podcast also like into the future. So, um, so I'm at this age where sort of like I, in the church, they would say you stand in the gap, you know, <laughs> uh, between that, between the, between the ancestors and the elders and the, mm -hmm. you know, and the, and the much younger people. Absolutely. That's, it's so powerful that, yeah, that definitely resonates with me. It's like, I think I kind of just shut off sometimes. I just like not go on Facebook, not go on social media for, for weeks on. If the news is, is, if the news is like to that point, someone will text it to me or I will see it. Um, but, and I know I have, I can't disengage, but I definitely feel kind of disenfranchised in, in that way by everything, but. And if it, if it weren't social media, it would be, you would be TV. You would be in the woods. You're like, I'm going to avoid the, I'm walking <laughs> in the woods to avoid the TV. You know what I mean? It's, it will always be. And, and you, I think like also when, you know, when you have a family, you're like, it could be as much as just like going in the, the closet to try to just quickly get the that page done before dinner or something so I mean it's I think the crucial thing is how you're saying is creating that time which sometimes when there's a lot happening in your community like mm. you feels a little guilty so then I remember like you know like summer 2020 we're like okay 
okay, we're going to do a little writing of essays and we're going to do a little marching. We're going to do a little donating. We're going to like to try to, you know, to balance it all. Mm -hmm. um, but to also give the work it's due when it's time, because mm -hmm. sometimes you feel like you can feel like you're bursting with it and to be like, okay, I got it. Just now it's the time to just do work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That intuition. Um, I, I'm looking at the time and the want to respect your time. I, I seriously, I've appreciated you being under call and uh, really talking and digging down in terms of your creative process, your vision. The last question I always ask the guest is what is one, like if you had a stage of like, or this amphitheater, for example, and you, <laughs> you could speak to all of them. And what is that one, one of the most important ideas that you think is going to be important for people to pay attention to or embrace or understand that's going to shape the next 30 years of our lives? The first thing that pops into mind for me is migration. Mm. Um, and it uh, ties up, you know, with, especially, you know, in the Haitian community, what we've, we've seen at the border with, especially that, you know, that image with the, uh, with the border patrol, man on the horse with the rain or the whip or whatever with uh he would had in his hand you know aiming it at the the Haitian refugees coming across the water I feel like um in migration we're going to have to address migration on so many levels in the next 30 or so years mm. and the arts will do it the you know certainly um but it's something that's we're seeing. There's going to be climate migration. Mm. Um, there's this uh, statistics I just saw. I mean, I saw it a while back, but it seems like it's shifting all the time. The UN was saying that um, the the number of there are about 65 million stateless quote people in the world now, and if they were like a nation, they would be the fifth largest nation in the world of stateless wow. people. So I. I think that's, and a lot of people will be knocking, you know, from at the door of these rich countries. Mm. Um, and what kind of neighbors are we going to be? Um, mm. There's going to be a lot asked of us, right? When the people who are knocking are brethren, like they come from where we come from. And so I think as, you know, artists, as just, people in the world, for sure. Um, and it's tied to climate change, what we talked about, but I think migration, um, whether it's the Mediterranean, you know, when they had all this, they still, the, all the migration in Europe or the Southern border, um, migration for me is gonna be a, something very important to, for all of us to, to keep in the forefront of our minds, especially those of us who come from um, the experience of migration already. Absolutely. That's very powerful. I, I'm the, the, one of the thoughts that popped in my brain when you were talking was the Carl Sagan's, the pale blue, uh, the pale blue dot, when he talks mm -hmm. about like how the, the earth is the only home we've ever had and we've ever known. And mm -hmm. it's like all these self-importance that people have proclaimed, all those sort of mind boundaries that we've created are all like happened 10,000 years ago and it happened 20,000 years ago in many different societies and I feel like we are moving in a direction where this pale blue dot it's like we're going to be we are being tested 
and mm-hmm. and the boundaries we've created and the differences that have been weaponized i feel like i i think I think should crumble. <laughs> so, yeah. Crumble yeah. in such a way that creates more like belonging, more understanding, more healing. But it, it, that is the mystery question. <laughs> and there's a there's a shift. I mean, I feel like you can literally almost feel it in the air. Something mm. is shifting. Mm. And the way the world functions, you know. Um, I don't know if this is like sort of my um, post-pandemic. <laughs> Um, but I think we've all too, like the whole world has realized this vulnerability, right. Mm -hmm. That, that we all have in common. And in the beginning of it, I think people were thinking we're going to be a more compassionate, like world, but, um, it's, it almost, you know, just, you, there's just something, this feels like a shift is coming and hopefully, um, it will be for good for people who have suffered so long. It will be, but it's, um, yeah. That's, yeah. I think that's, that, that's what, you know, you, you mentioned Sagan and, and that's what art does too, right? It kind of prepares our imagination for whatever's coming. Mm. And, and, and artists, you know, always, anticipate sometimes they're you know I don't think that's true in my case but I think there are a lot of artists who are kind of like prophets of these things like Orwell in 1984 and others um, you know who who can actually lay down a world that and then we read that literature we can turn that out we're like okay at least we've had some warning Mm. (laughs) and now we just have to try to do our best you know I think your work has done that too. I don't know. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think the stories that we consume, it, it's like the the shaman and the storytellers in the past, like mm-hmm. their role in society was to sort of evolve consciousness or like transition people into the next stage of like their adulthood. Or and I think collectively as a society, I definitely feel it in my bone as well. I think this is definitely a, there is a shift, like. We've entered a point where no one knows what's going to happen a month from now. It's like mm-hmm. the level of uncertainty and the yep. complexity, the the way the systems are evolving in terms of international, technolo- technological, climactic. I totally feel it too. Um, and I do agree as well. I think artists, like Riaz artists, are so fundamental to helping people imagine what those change can be. Because if our physical bodies are still operating from the same software from the 14th, 15th century. <laughs> like we want uh, to move into this new, this new system, this new model. Oh, I love that. The same software. That's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. It's kind of analog, but, but, but powerful. It's lasted quite a while. Yeah. It kind of, yeah. It reminds me actually of like, you know, each time I, my kids were born with a midwife and, the midwife kept telling me, people have been doing this for centuries. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and it's, and it's, you know, it's kind of like what you're saying, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's sometimes a good thing to remind, you know, it's, it's kind of like, there's a, um, Audrey Lord has in, in an essay of hers where she said, we've been through this, these things already in some form, right? Like certain, some 
some griefs that may seem new but are not quite new, right? And and I think that's also a powerful reminder that that we've had um, communally these ancestors who have been through so much, who have survived so much, and and the fact that we're here is because they endured and they they stayed the course and they survived, you know. So that's that's also in terms of when we think about the future, it's also a powerful thing to remember to to take with us into the future, I think. Absolutely. It's like through the past, we can have, we can have access to the future. It's almost as if it, I think it's almost a, I feel like, (laughs) I feel like it's almost a paradigm. It's, I would, I would even say it's a very African sort of paradigm in terms of time and space. Cause it's like in the West, we definitely see the future as like this very like, okay, we're going to go forward. But like in other countries or even indigenous or African societies, it's like time itself is in terms of the ancestors of what has happened, the unbroken connection to the past and the future. It's almost as if it's like it's like it's it's almost horizontal uh, as opposed to it's like it's circular as opposed to uh, linear in a way. Yeah, well, you know, it's like my grandma used to say, we're here as long as someone calls our names right mm-hmm. and so um but you know like we never really die i think that's that also gives us gives agency right to to how we exist like maybe the body's no longer here but you know like you said this um this model has been around a while and <laughs> and i've i've always thought that it was strict for me too like i think it's also the way i i grew up but I always think, yeah, it's, it would be strange for somebody to be here 10, 20, even one year or 90 or hundred years. And it's like, that's all there was. <laughs> so so um, the, the, the idea of a kind of circularity in life of, you know, has always made sense to me for sure. Likewise. Wow. This has such been a, a very inspirational, powerful conversation. I'm, and I'm definitely know the audience will, um, embrace this as well i i the where can we where can the viewers uh reach you are you on any social media are you active on any social media that they can follow um i'm not super active i'm you know i have a, a facebook page uh, it reached on to kind and i have a website and if folks want to and, and on the website i need to probably update it more but but on the website there's a lot of my um, links to my essays that are online so if folks want to read more about and then they can find out about my books there on the on my website edwishdantika.com or on my facebook page where i occasionally post things or <laughs> thank you yeah thank you so much edwish this has been such a powerful conversation to uh speak with a literary literary uh like mountain in the in the space that I look up to and and it's really it's been amazing thank you for uh for being here oh thank you so much for having me this was really wonderful I I enjoyed it so much thank you for asking me to do it (laughs) absolutely Thank you for listening to the Fabrice Guerrier Show. I really hope that you enjoyed this and you were changed and transformed by the questions and the comments and the ideas that were mentioned in this uh, podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please go and support me on Patreon. Like me on my socials 
and let's continue the conversation on social media. And always, thank you for tuning in.